I want to exhort you on a few things before we get into our message. We're going to continue teaching on repentance, which is very critical. Seeing as how we all admit we're none of us perfect, and when we sin and we discover it, we should repent, and we ought to all be really good at repentance. Sometimes we forget how to, or we think because we've been born again so long, I don't have to repent of anything anymore, some people think, and that's not wise, but we ought to be really good at it. And should the Lord reveal things that we've been doing wrong for a long time, that might maximize our skill at repenting because you're brokenhearted to realize I was that dumb that long, couldn't see it. Uh-huh. And just wait till what he shows you five years from now. And yet we have to receive that correction as the mercy of God and the love of God. And you might say, well, Lord, why now? Why would you just now show it to me? Because maybe we were just now in a place to receive it. God sees how we respond. He's also the God that said, if you rebuke a fool, you get a black eye. And so he's going to obey his own word because he doesn't contradict himself. So if he could see that 10 years ago, correcting us would cause him to get a black eye, you know, that's us shaking our fist at him and saying, God, who are you to correct? Oh, not me, Lord. I'm better than that. I've been in church 35 years. I've been a tongue talker since I was nine. And the Lord said, well, I couldn't tell. So he, he, like the Lord said in John's gospel, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you can't bear them. So you have to know that when he does reveal it to you, good, bad, or shameful, we're just now able to bear that revelation. And maybe he did want to tell us earlier, but he just couldn't. God is wise, all wise. And he loves us, and he's compassionate, and has mercy upon us in our weakness. But when he speaks to us about things that need to be addressed, we have to understand it's because we were just now in a place to hear it. And you can always judge how, how much it puts you in a tailspin that you may have just gotten to the place where you could hear it, depending on how bad the tailspin was. Can you imagine if he had told you a year ago and, and you're, just, you're still going, and airbags are dropping, people are puking, and wings are breaking off, and the Lord, I'm sure the Lord may have said, maybe we should have waited another year. No, he doesn't make mistakes, and we understand that. So what I want to exhort you on briefly there for a moment, I want to encourage you in your private life. Let me start off by saying, if this is the only time you open up your Bible, you're wrong and you're in sin. If this is the only time you worship the Lord or give thanks to him, that, that this being Sunday morning, you're wrong and you're in sin. If this is the only time you pray to God, maybe the house of God, when you come here, you're wrong and you're in sin. God is a living God. He's not a construct. He's not some golden statue pagans worship. He is a spirit. He's the creator of all things. And he calls us to fellowship. And our fellowship with him ought to be heartfelt. And we ought to desire it every day. Now, people have all sorts of reasons why they struggle with that. Laziness, insecurity, not taught, fear. I don't know. You have to overcome all of those. And you have to say, Lord, I love you, and I want to walk with you. Lord, I love you, and I'm glad this is the day you have made. I rejoice, and I'm glad with it. Your walk with the Lord needs to be genuine and heartfelt every day. You're looking at Scripture every day. You're talking to the Lord every day. At some point in the day, worship Him, even if it's not for 20 minutes, but maybe one song. Maybe it's on the commute in, or maybe you worship the Lord in the evening with your kids or your spouse. But part of having a relationship is is that it's alive, it's living, it's dynamic, it's not stale. 
And if it is stale, you'll get religious real quick. And if it is stale, everything you do will be fear-based. And it would be a horrible thing to walk with God and still be gripped by fear. Fear of making mistakes, fear of saying something wrong, fear of this and fear of that. And unfortunately, when you're full of fear, then everything you do for God will have a, a vibe of fear about it. Uh, almost like an ingredient that accidentally got knocked into whatever you were making. I don't think beef stew is supposed to have a hint of cinnamon in it. And neither should your worship have a hint of fear. And so you've got to make sure your walk with God is daily. It's fresh. It's refreshing. It's a, it's a time of honesty where, like Hebrew says, we come into, boldly into the throne of grace to receive help. We come with boldness, not fear. And we ought to be doing it regularly. If we're not careful, our emotions will get the best of us and everything we'll do will be drama. And that, that can break a thousand different ways in the wrong direction. And you can say, well, this is just never going to work. I quit. Or I'm just going to always do it wrong, so why bother? Or nobody's going to accept it. And before long, you sound like a toddler that needs discipline and not a grown adult. So your walk with God has to be sincere. And I would encourage all of you married people, as individuals, you should have a walk with God, even if your spouse doesn't. And then if your spouse does, there's absolutely no reason why you and your spouse don't come together and pray together regularly. And regularly, I would say, is at least four or five times a week. The only reason you don't is because you're not disciplined, you're lazy, or you don't love God, or maybe all. If it would save your life in marriage, you would do anything if your life and marriage was important to you. So why not pray together every day? Why not carve out the time? We all have equal number of hours in the day, but we don't all have the same victorious life because we all spend that time differently. Some prefer to waste time sleeping. Some prefer to waste time on social media. Some prefer to waste time on video games. But how about you make time for what's important and life-giving? Why waste time on that which benefits nothing? I'm not against a little bit of entertainment that benefits nothing. But when your life is suffering, you don't have time for social media. When your head is in a tailspin, social media is the last thing you need to waste your life on. You're not mature enough for it. If your head and your soul's in a tailspin, you should honestly drive a nail through your phone probably and get a flip phone and something help you be more disciplined. Don't waste your life if your life's in a tailspin. Do what you know to do. You've all been trained very well. You know how to escape any scenario if you want to escape it. Some people I don't think want to escape it. I think they just want to suffer and take the world with them because it's maybe what they were taught to do. If I'm going to be miserable, I want to spread it as far as wide as I can. But that's selfish and devilish. If you're married, you ought to pray together. If you're married, if you can tolerate each other's voices, maybe sing and worship songs together. <laughs> but at the very least, pray together. Maybe have a Bible study together. You're supposed to be best friends. I mean, I don't really get it. You can get naked together, but you can't get in the Bible together. You can get naked together, but you can't get in prayer together. Or then maybe you don't get naked together. So now we're just back to roommates. So if a marriage is just roommates, it's a very backslidden marriage. And since the husband has to lead, I blame him. We don't have time to get into all that, but you've got to do something. You're all very well taught in the Word of God. So physicians, fix yourself. Yes, sir. 
Amen. So Genesis chapter 4, I want to talk about repentance. And I want to look at a couple of instances of repentance in the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. That's where most of the stories of repentance take place. And I want to see what we can glean from these stories, see what we can do to help children, see what we can do to help families. And we'll just stop and look at these and maybe exegete along the way. We have a lot of families that are fixing things right now and individuals that are getting the victory. God has been emphasizing to our church a lot in the last couple months about getting over sin, putting things to rest, putting things to bed, killing things, repenting, restoring marriages, restoring families. And there certainly is a revival. It isn't the old Pentecostal word of faith, running, hooping, hollering, jumping, dancing uh, kind of revival. But then again, I lived through that. And where are those people today? I enjoyed it, loved it. I love running and dancing and hooping and hollering. I love the move of Pentecost. But at the end of the day, the people, most of the people I did that with 25 years ago don't serve God today or they're dead one. So then I might cynically ask, so what was the point of that Pentecostalism? It set people free in the moment, but are they any better today? I'm all for revival. I love it. But we're not in one, if you hadn't noticed. So we might as well do what God's doing right now, which is emphasizing repentance and getting the victory. And this ought to encourage you because it means weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning if, if you really want joy. Now, some people don't really want joy. They want to sulk. They want to mope. And they like the attention that comes from that. But God will only tolerate that so long, even if we're dealing with the death of a loved one. And then God's going to thump you. Because he's going to say, am I not the all-sufficient one? Am I not your joy? Am I not your peace? Am I not your forgiveness? Am I not your all in all? Then why act ye this way? You can mope and manipulate with your emotions if you want to, but it's going to bring a harsher judgment than whatever he thumped you on in the first place. So let's look at some examples of repentance and see what we can learn from it. Genesis chapter 4, this is a story about Cain and Abel bringing an offering. And still happens to this day. Some people's worship is accepted. Some people's worship is rejected. It happens a lot on the worship team where people get real competitive and jealous when somebody gets chosen to be on the worship team and somebody doesn't. Or some people are sat down and others are promoted. Or somebody gets picked to lead the song or be the vocalist. And all of a sudden we have Cain and Abel all over again among tongue talkers. Dr. Barclay taught us years ago. He would pray over his children. There would be no Cain or Abel spirit. We pray that over our kids so that they don't act like Cain and Abel and get jealous over each other. We probably ought to start praying that over worship teams so that Cain doesn't get upset because God doesn't want to use them anymore and pick up a stone to kill the young Abel who maybe is more anointed and more obedient. When God demotes you, it's an indictment against you, not him, not who he selected over you. So that's what happens. Verse 5 says, But unto Cain and to his offering... God had not respect. It's a problem when God doesn't respect your worship. And the song is not the problem. The money, the fruit, the vegetables, the action is not the problem. We can't say, I did everything you told me to do. We know that the missing ingredient is always the heart. So whenever you get demoted or rejected, it will always be because of the heart. And that's hard on religious people because when you're halfway smart, you can polish the facade, pull every lever, push every button, pull every chain, and do it right, but have no heart for it. 
And that's what will always get us rejected when the heart is not right behind the action. To sing in fear or pride will not be accepted. To play an instrument in fear or pride or showmanship will not be accepted. To give a big offering or a little offering in pride or fear will not be accepted. God wants the heart. He had not respect, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell, which really showed you what was cooking beneath the surface all along. There was no humility here. We don't know how he could tell God did not accept him. I think maybe personally fire came from heaven. That seems to be an Old Testament pattern of God accepting an offering. How, however it happened, we don't know, but Cain could tell God does not like what I've just done. And God's rejection of the offering revealed what was deeply rooted in the heart of Cain, which is emotional instability, pride, resentment, because just by accepting his brothers and not accepting his, all of a sudden Cain kicks, gear, kicks gears into another emotion. And now we're into wrath and anger and his countenance falls. A humble person would have said, Lord, um, sir, what could I have done better? Sir, my heart was to bless you, but this hasn't blessed you. What would bless you? The heart behind repentance is, Lord, if I have failed you and sinned against you, I don't understand how. If you don't, you ask honestly. I don't understand how. What could I have done better? Humble people want to know how to do it better. Humble people want to know where they made the mistakes. Humble people don't want to make those mistakes again. Humble people want to know why God was grieved so they don't grieve God again because they genuinely love God and they want to please him. Humble people want to know. Arrogant people, stubborn people, sinful people, if they're not accepted and if everything they're doing is not heralded and praised by everyone, the real them comes to the surface. And in this case, the real Cain is wroth, very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, and we make this point, when God starts asking you questions, you're in trouble. Because he doesn't ask questions for, your, or for his benefit. He asks them for your benefit. He's not a psychologist trying to get to the bottom of what's in you. He already knows. He's asking questions to get you and I to introspect, to ask ourselves, I don't know, why was I that way? Why did I do that? Why did you use those words? Why are you still sulking? What do you hope to accomplish? The question always reveals the heart of the problem. The question always lines you up in the right direction. He says, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? That means even your countenance fallen can be sin. Even the countenance fallen or uplifted can be sinful depending on the heart behind it. You can smile and have a joyful countenance at the demise of your enemy and it be sinful. You can smirk when someone gets in trouble when it should have been you and that's sinful. Because once again, the countenance is an extension of your heart. So he doesn't just get mad or get in trouble for his attitude. He gets in trouble for the way his face is promoting it. Probably because it's really all about Cain. And he just wants the attention that he didn't get from the offering. So give it to me another way. Because in the end, he just wants attention. 
Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you would do well. Oh, see, nobody wants to hear that they did poorly unless they're humble. If you would do well, would you not be accepted? We point out every time we teach this, the Hebrew says, if you would have done this joyfully, because that's always the key, joyfully. You can get to a place where you take correction joyfully. You can get to a place, if you'll pray it out in humility, that you're excited to get corrected, that you're looking forward to it. Can't wait to get my hands on that correction. Can't wait to get chewed out. Can't wait to sit down and be reviewed. Can't wait for my annual review. Can't wait for that project review. Can't wait for the, the judge to come critique my art or my book or my paper or my playing. Can't wait for the boss to come inspect how I clean my line. You, if you're humble and you really want to please God, these things delight you because if you're humble and full of excellence, you don't want to stink at anything. So anything that makes you better is a gift. If you have the right mindset. Not everybody has that mindset. People want to settle for mediocrity and they say, how dare you? How dare you judge my mediocrity? Well, you're judging it. You already know it's mediocre. Humble people want to know better. If you do this joyfully, would you not also be accepted? But if you do this not joyfully, sin lies at the door. So this reveals something even greater that if joy is absent from anything we're doing, it lends itself to greater sin. If joy is absent from repentance, who for the joy set before him, Jesus endured. Maybe for the joy set before us in apologizing to our spouse, we endure the shame of repentance. If we devoid ourselves from the joy that is found in repentance, it's only going to open up the door for greater sin. It's not comfortable to repent. It's not comfortable to tell your spouse or your kids you were wrong, but there ought to be joy there because you know, I'm making it better. I'm cleaning it up. We're going to be able to be better after this. Wow. Daddy was way wrong for, for the whole vacation, but daddy doesn't have to be wrong now. It's an arrogant, cocky, demonic thing when you stomp your foot and you shake your fist at your kids and you say, I'm your father. How dare you? I might say, you're my father when it's convenient for you. That's pretty wicked. For some of you, maybe you're a mother when it's convenient for you. So don't, don't be surprised when your kids don't respect you. And they maybe ought to tell you that. And if you're humble, you'll receive it. And for the joy set before you can make a change and be a father or a mother consistently and not just when it conveniences you. Somebody else is raising your kid. You're not parenting them. If all you ever do that, you know, a couple weeks ago, I talked about fly swatter parents that just show up and just start swatting everything. And there's no consistent rhyme or reason. Flies have been buzzing the picnic table all day, and then all of a sudden you've just had your fill, and then you just start swatting at everything, and the flies are confused because you're like, well, I've landed on everything a dozen times, laid eggs on half of it, and now you're not happy? And that's how some spastic, unstable, carnal parents are. So the kids don't know what, what's the parameters. Am I not supposed to be on the couch when daddy gets home? Because he's yelling at me for being on the couch when he got home. I've been on the couch like for six years, and he's never yelled at me, but now that was like holy hell. 
Is it being on the backyard? Is it being on the deck? Is it playing in my shoes and not these shoes? I mean, because parents are unstable, their discipline's unstable, and it produces chaos in the souls of kid, kids. And then the kids act chaotic, and mom and dad are even more angry, but you don't understand, mom and dad. That chaos is your creation and your fault. So you think you can beat it out of them, but you beat it into them. You wouldn't work for a boss that bosses you the way you parent. So you're a hypocrite. You're a shallow hypocrite. Because if your boss came in just screaming, yelling, and it was no rhyme or reason, you'd say, forget this. And except you expect your little child creation to submit to that foolishness. You be careful. They're going to record you on an iPod and upload it to the cloud. And we're going to see what kind of demonized moron you are. And if I get wind of it, we might watch it and see how you feel about that repentance because it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. You're supposed to have the fruit of the Spirit. And that kind of parenting is not fruitful or spiritual. It's demonic. So coming back, that was fly swatter parenting. And then there's what I call uh, the, uh, the judge-jury-executioner parenting. The JJE, judge-jury-executioner. And that's when mom and dad don't do anything but show up, look around, bring the verdict, bring the sentencing, and then just scream at everybody. They just show up, and it's, I judge you, here's your sentence, and now I'm going to implement it. And those are the kind of parents nobody wants to be around either because when you show up, all I do is get in trouble. And that's a selfish, shallow kind of parenting as well. And then those kind of parents has been my experience and observation. They try to redeem time with their kids on vacations. But all a vacation is is a microcosm of your home, away from home, with more money. And now you're like Clark Griswold. You're like, no, 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 we're going to have the hap, 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 happiest vacation. You're going to smile. I'm going to beat it on your face. Like, I don't want to be with you. It's evident for the last year of school you didn't want to be with me, and now i got to live in this hotel with you for seven days, and we got to put on this fake smile at Disney? You're awfully quiet. I must be nailing your parenting style. And you're the spirit-filled bunch. So what spirit are you filled with? I was trying to make this very encouraging. Sunday school was scorched earth. Uh, well, what I was trying to do is pinpoint who is in Sunday school that is not here that lightened it up, but now, no, they're still here, so maybe this is still their fault. I don't know. I'm trying to like, help us find joy in time of failure so that we can be more excited about repenting to our loved ones. And the single folks like, tell you what, I ain't getting married now. I don't want kids. This sounds like it's hard. I was just looking forward to sex, but forget that. I'll just pray that thing dry up. <laughs> so there ought to be a joy set before us because if we would do it joyfully, we'd be accepted. But if there's ever a joy absent, even in our repentance, even if the joy has to be postponed and in front of us, who for the joy set before us, we endure the shame of repentance like Christ did in Hebrews 12. If there's no joy on the other side of our repentance, our repentance can become sinful too. Because then we hold it begrudgingly. We're bitter and angry. We sulk, mope. And then we hold resentment to the person who exposed me or, or shamed me or said I hurt them. I, I, I don't deny it. It's hard to be around people you've had to repent to, especially when you realize how wickedly you did them. 
But if they would graciously, graciously receive your repentance, and that means they do love you and they want a better relationship with you. So they probably don't really care about the past. They just wanted to hear you recognize you were a fool and they're ready to move on. But maybe you're not because you're still conditioned to hold grudges. So maybe you hadn't really changed since then. So now we got a real issue because we have to bring the the repentance to fruition and not just simply say, I'm sorry. Like the example we've been using for several services of the giant gun turret on the top of a battleship that clicks a degree with a gear. And we maybe were once pointed to the south with this giant turret and we gave all of our kids and our spouse both guns or all three guns a-blazing. And we realize now that was too much like mama who we hated or daddy who we despise, but we can't deny that we're just their little doppelganger. We just speak in tongues while we're at church. But we repent, and this process of repentance has to continue until we're nothing like that anymore. And that doesn't always happen overnight. But for the joy set before you, which is, let's say, due north, the 180-degree turn that repentance calls for, for the joy set before you, I would tell you to let that shame continue to speak to you so you can say, I ain't going to be that again. We ought to all still have that cringe that we go, (laughs) you make that fist and go, no, 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 no. I got a couple things from my past that are cringeworthy and I can, I can be awesome just doing a great thing. And all of a sudden I just remind myself, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Almost like catching a chill or something like, whoo. That could not be far enough in my past. And you say, what is it? doesn't matter because we're not polling me. My sermon's about you, not my my cringy moments. (laughs) But we've all got them. Thankfully, those things don't burp up in my life anymore except for the memory. But there is a place where I think you take the shame of how you treated somebody or what you used to do, how you used to be. And anytime you're tempted to start to kind of let your tank turret swing back. You go, well, no, 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 no. I was ashamed of that then, and I'm still going to be ashamed of it. I'd rather have joy. So for the joy set before me, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. And you just keep cranking that repentance until you're face to face with joy. And sometimes it doesn't happen overnight and you have to be prepared for the long haul. But every click you're taking in the right direction keeps the grace of God on you. And we need that grace. So he says, uh, Thou doest not well, sin lies at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him, or you must exercise dominion over him. The, the sad thing we point out with this when we do teach on it, we have taught extensively on this conversation. God asks and teaches Cain so many things, and Cain never answers anything. He never asks questions back. Lord, what, what, how can I fix this? Lord, what can I do? The competition arises between Cain and Abel over worship. And so the first conversation Cain has is with his brother. And it says there that Cain talked with Abel. Why didn't Cain talk with God? Cain talked with Abel. Why didn't Cain talk with God? God's, God's talking to Cain. I mean, look at how many questions are asked. That's a lot of questions. And Cain's not shocked to see the eternal God talking to him. He's not saying, what is that? What strange thing is this? He's really bright. Should I put on sunglasses? It's like a normal thing to him, which is maybe a problem. 
or maybe it's just so casual, it's whatever, whatever. This really speaks to the fact that when we do repent, when we have made mistakes, we've got to go straight to God. Now, we have to repent to people when that's what the situation calls for, but we ought to be so trained, so discipled, so comfortable with God in a reverential way that when we fail, we go straight to God and say, Lord, this was just brought to me and I'm beginning to realize how bad it was. Help me with this. Where did I go wrong? How did I do this? Why, why was I so goofed up? Could I have really been that goofed up? Uh, we've got to make sure we're returning to God, asking him as just as many questions. How did it get this way? Lord, I don't know how I hurt them so bad. Lord, I don't know why I was that way. If we try to repent without regular fellowship with God, we're going to fail. Now, that's the catch-22, though, because if we're in a season of repentance, we have a lot of shame. And that shame will often produce the wrong effect. Where shame should keep us from sin, we use the shame to keep us from God. And we often will go back to the sin. We misdirect the shame. Shame is a good thing in its proper context. We ought to be ashamed when we sin. The New Testament tells us as much. Paul said, I write this to your shame. And that shame ought to be a good driving force to keep us from sin. But what it ends up doing if we're carnal, and it will reveal our lack of maturity in Christ, if it keeps us from God, we've not developed the close walk with him we should. If shame keeps us from God, we've misused it. If shame keeps us from sin, we're rightly appropriating it. I'm ashamed of what I did. I'm not ashamed of who I am in Christ. God knew I did it anyway, so he's the first person I'm talking to. But often the first person you talk to when you realize you're wrong will reveal who's real to you. And we're all guilty of saying, do you really think this was that bad? To your friend, your spouse, your sister, your brother. Is it really that bad? Why are you asking them? Are you trying to get out of it like me? Like I did once upon a time with the story I share, asking my pastor, I think God told me I don't like Dr. Barclay. What do you think? And I was looking for him to affirm that God was wrong and I was right. And I didn't have anything wrong with Dr. Barclay. And Pastor Trey said, well, it sounds like you don't like Dr. Barclay. You better get that right. Why do we go to people and not God first? Because Hebrews does command us, let us therefore go boldly, come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain grace and uh, help and find grace to help in time of need. And we have, might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Time of need is when you've blown it. Time of need is when you're ashamed. Time of need is when you found out you've hurt people in your life. That's time of need. So we're going to have to really disciple our own mind and discipline it, renew it to say, when I blow it, it should blow me right into the throne of grace. But we often, we're like Jonah. We blow it and we grab the goods and run. And I think we get into a works mindset and we begin to ostracize ourselves and excommunicate ourselves. That's an Old Testament punishment. It's not New Testament. When you blew it under the Old Testament, you might have to be outside the camp for seven days. We don't have permission to go outside the camp. Christ went outside the camp once for all. 
Therefore, we go to him to receive forgiveness. Why are we excommunicating ourselves? Why do we uh, put ourselves outside the body of Christ and outside fellowship and outside God's presence for seven to 15 days? I don't know what your prescription is. Everybody's is different. Well, that sin wasn't that bad, so I'll only extricate myself for like five to seven days. Uh, hopefully, I'll get uh, time, time served, good behavior, uh, maybe just three days. So now we're into a penal system. But when the Bible says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, it's because we have a need. And so we see here with Cain, God's asking him questions and questions and questions. He says, listen, and you don't hear the anger of God. God's not angry in these questions. And it doesn't say he hated Cain's offering. He says he had no respect for it. He showed up for the worship service, but just paid attention to Abel's. But it brought the real essence of Cain to the surface. And Cain, when he was corrected and given marching orders, master this thing, son. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to master. Hey, Abel, thump. And the sin grew worse. And you see in verse 9, the Lord said unto Cain, where's Abel, your brother? Now Cain's ready to talk to God. And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? That's, um, that's a little bit of attitude right there. Now you want to talk? You've just committed murder, and now you want to talk to God? Who am I? Why would I know? I'm not his keeper. And he misses an opportunity to change his life. We, you and I have to be very careful shaking our fists at God, <laughs> mocking him. Who, who in the world taught us to shake a fist and mock God? Who taught us to shake a fist and tell God, why, God, why, God, why? Man, you don't know the God you trifle with. And it's evident because the only time you'll talk to him is when you scream at him, but you won't go into his presence and say, Lord, I've messed up. Have mercy on me, Lord. You're a good God. Have mercy and help me. So there's a lot we can extract there. The Lord goes on to judge him and tells him, all right, from henceforth, you'll be a fugitive and a vagabond. And then Cain says, oh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And uh, now he wants to talk. Well, he missed the hour of his visitation. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. We'll miss the hour in the season to turn a situation. And I know in our God-loving, mercy-loving hearts, we don't like to hear that repentance has an expiration date and that grace has a time constraint. But if you stop to logically think about it, not even using scripture, you understand it. So you only have so much time to save a marriage and then you've hurt somebody too bad to repair it. You only have so much time to raise a kid and then you've hurt them too bad to disciple them. You only have so much time in your life to convert to Christ, and then you go to hell. We believe in deathbed conversions, and may they happen every day, but people will still die and go to hell, and the window of opportunity, the hour of their visitation, the hour of salvation and repentance passes them up. So even as much as we want to testify of God's grace and his mercy and his loving kindness, every opportunity for repentance has an expiration date. There are a reason, there's a reason why Christians die prematurely. They didn't repent in time. There's a reason Christians die bound to sex and drugs and sickness and disease. They didn't repent in time. So my, what I want you to be mindful of is we don't trifle with opportunities for repentance. We don't waste the grace and the mercy of God because we're lazy and just don't want to get after it. You need to hear me clearly. 
you're going to miss a window of opportunity to fix things and move on to the blessing in the next stage of God in your life. If you're stale in Christ, you've already missed an opportunity to repent and be better. We believe in the mercy. We believe in the long-suffering. We believe in the grace of God, but it isn't forever suffering. And his spirit will not always strive with you or I. You do believe in the resistance of God, right? He resists the proud. So just quit, quit humbling yourself and he'll resist you. Quit repenting. He'll resist you. And he'll resist you to the day you die. And you'll be stuck in 2023 or 1993. We're not designed to peak until we step over to eternity. And even that's not a peak. That's promotion. You and I are not designed to kind of come up radically in Christ and then flatline until heaven, boop, and then take a spike. We ought to come up in Christ little by little, glory to glory, grace by grace, faith by faith, to the perfect day, to the bright sun. But too many Christians come up and then just kind of peak, and really they don't ever flatline. They just start to gently come down like a glider. They say gliders can, can glide for as long as 10 hours once they're pulled up to their high elevation, but they eventually have to come down too. Go with me to 1 Kings 21. I want to talk about repenting in the aspect of family. So single people, listen to me because this is important for you. You will one day be married and one day have children. And you need to understand that your behaviors, your private sins will affect your children. We have to love our children so much we're willing to make whatever painful changes necessary for our life so that our kids don't have to bear our burden. When you love people, you bear their burdens. Even when you bear your children's burdens successfully, they will grow up to bear new burdens that will not be your responsibility. But I've taught for a while now, it's horrible to give your children Goliath as an inheritance. It's horrible to give your children the Amalekites and the Hittites as an inheritance. It's a horrible thing to give your children the curse as an inheritance. We do not believe in generational curses. It's biblically uh, disproven pretty easily. We do believe in generational flesh, though. And the major prophet says, you can no longer use the proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and their children's teeth are set on edge, which means I act the way I act because of my daddy. The Lord said, from this point forward, he that sins shall bear his sin, whether it's the father or the child. So the balance of that is the children of Israel saying, well, I'm this way because my daddy was that way. And they were using it as an excuse. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm going to judge you for your own sin. But that, that adjustment, I think, is in Ezekiel. Uh, it does not negate the concept that poor parenting affects kids. I think we understand that even in a holy household. So what I want to teach on here is that once mom and dad have repented and, and would to God you do, you don't stop. You have to know you've set in motion judgment upon your children. And you've got to pray it off of them. It's your fault. And you need to know that. If you neglected your kids, they're going to have sinful ramifications because of neglect. And it was your fault because you neglected them. If you chase money while they were growing up and didn't chase them, they're going to have issues. And that's your fault. And you can't just repent and say, well, I thank God he washed my sin away. Why don't you intercede to your kids straight, even though they're 38? You don't ever stop praying for your kids. So here in 1 Kings, we have judgment coming upon 
Ahab for all of his wickedness. Ahab's sin was that he just didn't have a backbone. He was pretty carnal to begin with. Then he went and married a horrible woman, and she made it even worse. And God, though he judged Jezebel, he held Ahab responsible for everything. And the judgment of God comes upon Ahab through the prophet Isaiah. Excuse me, Elijah. And verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou find me, found me, O my enemy? 1 Kings 21, 20. And he answered, I have found thee, because thou sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee and take away thy posterity. And will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel. Because of the sins of Ahab, God says, I will destroy his children. Now, you can say that's Old Testament, but Revelation 2 says the exact same thing about Jezebel at the church of Thyatira. I will visit her children with death. So sort that out in your grace doctrine. But those are the red letters of Jesus Christ in a micro epistle to an early New Testament spirit filled church. I want to principalize it and say, you goof up, your kids pay the price. That's the judgment here. Because of your sins, Ahab, I am going to cut off your posterity and all of your household that pisseth against the wall. It's all the boys. They will be gone too. And anyone left in Israel, they're gone too. And will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the provocation where thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And Jezebel also spake, uh, and of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dog shall eat Jeze uh, Jezebel by the walls of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat, and him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. Husbands, be careful how your wives stir you up. Wives, make sure you stir your wives up in the grace and admonition of the Lord. Make sure, wives, that you have your husband's ear and you say, honey, you can do it. I'm praying for you. I'm proud of you. You're my man. You're the head of our home. You're anointed in grace. I'm praying for you. Be bold. Be a man of courage. And husbands, you better let that fill your balloon up. Husbands, don't marry a woman who needs constant encouragement. Because if you have to constantly blow into her ear, she'll have nothing to blow into yours. If, if she's defeated, what's going to happen when you're defeated? Because every man fights a battle and loses it and needs the encouragement of his wife. And if he's having to huff and puff and just make her float... She'll have nothing to give to him when he's been attacked as the head of the home, and now the two shall perish. So you make sure you marry a woman who knows how to encourage herself in the Lord and isn't some mopey, whiny, needy, oh, woe is me, nobody cares for me. And if that is you, sweetie, you better fix that before you start looking for Prince Charming to come along. Because if he is a prince and he's charming, he needs high caliber. And I'm not saying you're not high caliber. You may just be low caliber. So increase your caliber because any man of God needs a woman who will stand behind him and not stab him in the back or nag at him as he goes off to war. She says, I'm praying for you. You're well-trained. God's got this. You go do your thing. I'll keep the home fires going because I'm a woman of God. And if you can't keep the home fires going, what's your problem? My God, you are anointed to be a woman, to be a mother. I have taught to the nth degree about all the graces that come out of a woman. There's not a single 
chapter dedicated to a man like there is Proverbs 31 to women. And you can't harness that. What is your problem? Get with your God until you are different. Amen. It's good preaching. Yes, it is. Thank you. I'll take an offering up for myself. <laughs> and he did very abominable in following idols according to all the things as did the Amorites, which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes, put sackcloth upon his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. So he repents. Which is pretty amazing because he's been pretty stubborn up until now. But the thought of losing his kids, which is a real threat to any man today, the threat of losing his wife, which is a real threat to any man today. And his legacy, that struck a, a chord, a nerve. And apparently it's what he needed to hear. And he went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Here we see an example of repentance getting judgment off the individual, but he did not repent far enough. If he could that quickly turn God off of him, why would he not press in and say, oh God, have mercy, I've done an evil thing. I'm the king, I still have the authority. I can bring about a revival. Have mercy on my sons. I'll straighten this woman out. Have mercy on my wife. I'll bring a revival to the kingdom. Have mercy on those that remain, those that pisseth against the wall. I can do this, Lord. If you'll give me time, I'm your king. I have your authorization. I can command every idol be torn down. I can command every pagan cast out. I can command death to anyone who won't repent. Why would he not do that? But then again, why won't we? Why do we repent just enough to get the pastor off our neck? Why do we repent just enough to get a smile in the hallway, but not get with our God to roll back sin, to figure out what the collateral damage of our rebellion has been, and then intercede to get that off of those who've been affected by us? Why are we selfish and so lazy as to only repent for the CCF two weeks. Meanwhile, every time we fall back, we bring more judgment upon the kids and our household and our place in the kingdom. And all we ever seem to be capable of doing at times as Christians in this dispensation is repent just enough to get some breathe room and keep living as mediocre middle-class Americans. Why would we not go ahead and take this thing all the way and bring about total reforms as the good kings of Judah did. When you're the king, you can put your own mother out like Asa. When you're the king, you can destroy every temple and every idol like Josiah did. You can invoke the Old Testament, reestablish the priesthood, and bring about revolutionary revival if it's important to you. But I must judge the reason we don't is because it's just not important to us because we have our mediocre, mediocre, middle-class income. We have our house and our cars and our food and our couch and our social media and our useless existence 
in 2023. So why would I bother to pray harder? Why would I bother to go to bed late, staying in the face of God till things were turned? Why would I? I'm blessed. Who cares what happens to my kids? They're not my problem. Which is exactly what the next king said, Hezekiah. Let's look at his story. 2 Kings chapter 20. Maybe you're under the delusion that you're still living in the peak of your life and you're not. I'm having to come to grips with that, the fact that I'm closing in on 50. Now, somebody say, well, you still got three years. Well, okay, it doesn't feel like that to me. My mind tells me I'm in my mid-20s. Some aspects of my fitness tell me I'm the same. I look at my driver's license and says, no, 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 no. We're knocking on 50, which means the better part of my life is gone. Not, not the good part of my life, but the bulk of the time is gone. Why would I not focus this season of my life to bring my kids into the best part of their life? Why would I be so damnable, so reprobate, so selfish, so mediocre, so lazy, so American in my Christianity? Why would I not begin a revival in my own household? Especially if I'm the one that brought hell on it. Perversion, laziness, mishap, perversion, obesity, poverty, insecurity, shame, demonism. That's, if you're the parent, that's your fault. That's your creation. Why would you repent just enough to get a little bit of reprieve for you so you can go watch another stupid football game, watch another stupid movie, take another stupid vacation, and just say, forget my kids. Just forget them. I'm blessed. They'll get it eventually. That is so incredibly reprobate, abject, and perverse. And yet that's the American Christian mindset. And we're the folks that are supposed to have faith and dominion. Able to cast out devils, speak to mountains, and curse sycamine trees. But we can barely move God off our neck. We feel pretty good when pastor doesn't preach at us anymore. Forget this is not about me and you and God. This is about you and God. I'm just this little lowly shepherd, the voice in the midnight hour going, get your life ready because he's coming. Second Kings 20, verse 1, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz, came to him, said unto him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. We don't even really know what he did wrong. But you don't get that kind of unfavorable visit from the prophet Isaiah without doing something stupid. Some say pride. Uh, one verse does tell us it's pride, but we don't know how that manifested. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is, in, which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. It came to pass before Isaiah was gone out of the middle court that the word of the Lord came unto him saying, Turn again until Hezekiah, the captain of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayers. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up into the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And I will deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. And they took it, laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And so just... With, there's not much time span between the prophet's 
declaration. You're a dead man. Put your house in order. And there's no fellowship to say, no, no, let's hug, hug, hug. I know that's really hard on you, but I just, I just have to obey God, King. I just don't shoot me. I'm just a messenger. Hey, I can just see him saying, you're dead and I'm gone. And he begins his walk out and doesn't even get to the middle courtyard, which means he's maybe 100 yards away, 200 yards away, depending on how big Solomon's palace is that he's living in. And, and that five minutes, five minutes face to the wall, five minutes prayer, five minutes intercession for himself, five minutes pleading for mercy. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet and says, go back. We're reversing judgment. He's humbled himself. Tell him I'll give him 15 years. So he comes back, makes the declaration. You're going to have 15 years. Here's a sign. Now jump down to verse 14. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, what said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, These are come from a far country, even from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, All the things that are in my house have they seen. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Hezekiah brings the Babylonian ambassadors in and just shows him his wealth. This was a, a no-no, apparently. And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in your house and all and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt begat, shall they take away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now pause there. He says, your sons and the sons you haven't even had yet, they're going to be taken as slaves. They're going to be castrated and serve a pagan king. That's the judgment. That's harsh. I don't know what I would do. Yeah, I do, because I'm preaching it right now. If the Lord came to me and said, your children will be enslaved in the sex trade for your sins, I would begin to cry out to God and say, show me how to turn it. You're merciful. Father, you said, I eat sour grapes. Their teeth aren't set on edge. Why are they falling under my judgment? Lord, I would begin to plead every promise I know, because I don't want to think about my children in slavery ever, much less my boy being castrated and my girls being raped. This is the word of the Lord to Hezekiah. Verse 19, then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And he said, is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Now, that is how a few of you are repenting over your sin. When it concerns you, you'll move God. When the fallout has touched your kids, it's not worth the extra prayer. If Hezekiah could move judgment off of his life in five minutes... What would a month of prayer and fasting do for Babylonian judgment? You're the king. You command everybody. The king of Nineveh called a fast and preserved a whole nation for a hundred years. He commanded the cows to fast. Because he's the king and he could do that. But you know what? It was just easier for Hezekiah to say, well, hey, man, that's a good word. And uh, wow, you know, thank God I won't see it. That's how some of you intercede 
and repent because you refuse to get into prayer to roll back your failures off your kids. Because, hey, it's good with me. I'm prospering now. I've done nothing wrong. I've been right with God for a good six minutes. Look, I got favor. Babylon's coming to me. Business is picking up again. It's like the favor of God's come back to my house. Why would you not intercede deeper? If the king with five minutes for himself could remove a death sentence, why would he not command all of his people and say, I have a horrific word from the prophet and the prophet's accurate. We're going to see what we can do to turn this. We're going to see what we can do. If not for their sake, at least for his boy's sake. That might be the driving impetus. I don't want to imagine my boys castrated. I don't want to imagine my boys as slaves the rest of their life. What he's also saying is you don't get any grandkids because you're that deadbeat of a dad. Why would he not? Why does he stop and say, is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Is there really peace and truth when you're that corrupt? So, ladies, don't marry a man who doesn't know how to pray. Don't marry a man who doesn't know how to intercede till things are different. Don't marry a man that goes to bed before you because he's just too lazy or who stays up late gaming. In fact, I say don't marry a gamer, period. And by gamer, I mean that's like their hobby. You know, if you're going to have kids, you're going to be a gamer because kids like it. But you know what I mean. This defines their life. Don't be that. Last story, 2 Samuel. See if we can find somebody better. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Are you learning anything? All right. Repentance is a serious issue. We've just cheapened it by saying, Father, I'm sorry. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We've been hitting this story a couple times. Give me just about another five, ten minutes, and we'll wrap this up. This one, I think, is important. So we know the story. We've covered it in a couple services. David did not go off to war where he should have been, so he got lazy as a man. Lazy men are are a blight on their family. Lazy men are a blight to their family. Lazy men are a blight to their wives and to their children. Don't marry lazy men. Don't marry lazy men. If you are stuck and your whole destiny and your kids is bottlenecked behind a lazy dude, pray him that he'll accelerate or pray that God will give you a downhill edge for a little bit. Maybe pick up some momentum. But if you're single, you don't marry lazy men. David did not go off to war like he should have, so he ended up having this affair with Bathsheba. We estimate three to four years have gone by because the boy from Bathsheba who is cursed is a toddler. The Hebrew word is toddler. It's not infant. It's toddler. So that's, I say, two to four years. Let's just say three years. David has shown no signs of repentance for the affair, for the murder, or for the conspiracy. So as far as he knows, everything's right as rain. Though he knows everything he did was wrong because he's not a fool. Just like when somebody brings up our past, we can't act like we didn't know it was wrong. We're not a fool. Are we saying we were that stupid years ago? No, we knew it was wrong. We're just not willing to admit it. So we get confronted with it. Now, David gets confronted with it years later because God has a right to bring up anything he wants to, as do the people we've hurt. 
They hold that right to be able to bring it up if they want to, if it helps them. And if it helps them, why would you not let them bring it up? If you love people and want them help, why would you not let them bring it up at least once if it would give them an opportunity for help? Are you not tougher than that? Are you not more mature than that? Sure, you should be. So Nathan brings it up, which is really bad when the prophet has to get in your business because it means you show no signs of repenting on your own. And so we know he says, hey, in this parable, this man should restore. He needs to die, but he needs to restore all. Fourfold, because that's Levitical law. It's Exodus law. Uh, so he's quoting the scripture. So he has a scriptural answer for everybody but himself. So then Nathan says, you're the man, and goes on to say, I did all this for you. I blessed you. I blessed you. I blessed you. I blessed you. And if this wasn't enough, I'd have blessed you some more. But because you've done this wicked thing, he said, the sword, verse 10, will never depart from your house. Because you've despised me. We forget that when we sin, it's because we are despising God in the moment. That's why David said in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus says the Lord, because, uh, behold, I will raise up evil against, your, against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun, for thou didst secretly... But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The second he touched his family and his household, David repented. And that's more telling than Ahab and more telling than Hezekiah. Ahab and Hezekiah both had judgment against their families and they shrugged it off. If you and I hear judgment upon our home, it ought to activate deeper repentance because we are supposed to love them more than ourselves. Ahab heard about judgment on his sons and his wife and it just made him fear. But he didn't repent for him or intercede for him. And Hezekiah heard about judgment on his boys becoming eunuchs and slaves and he said, well, at least it's not me. What got David's attention is evil will be upon your house. You'll lose your wives. And David said, I have sinned. He didn't want to hear what else might be coming. It's already going to cost him his wives. And that's where he stops and intercedes and says, I have sinned. And Nathan says, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die because that's the next judgment. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child, the toddler also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So one more judgment comes. And so David is not like Hezekiah. Well, at least it's not me. Well, hey, we stopped judgment. Whew, I'm so big I can't fail. I'll have a good life. We'll make more kids. Life is cheap. No, that's not what happens. Verse 15, And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God. He intercedes. He goes to prayer. David's already repented. His mess is done. And this is where we have to catch ourselves when we've done wrong. We often somehow manage to make repentance on our behalf somebody else's fault. Let's say Robert comes to me, says, Pastor, I, I got to tell you something. You said something to my wife. It really upset both of us. And uh, I just can't leave it alone. This is what you said. I don't think it was right. 
it becomes my job to clean that mess up. It becomes my job to say, Robert, I apologize. Let's put your wife on the phone. Let's talk to Miss Angie. Miss Angie, your husband said I said this, and please, I want you to forgive me. I, I remember saying that. I didn't mean for it to be taken that way. Maybe a little. Maybe I did. I want you to forgive me. It wasn't right. I sinned against you. That's good. If then I walk away saying, why can't they be more mature than that stupid bunch of old people? Why can't they've been with me this long? They're that easily offended. They ought to be better. The carnal person makes my repentance their fault. We've all done it. Well, you know, if they weren't such a sissy, they could take it. Why, why, why couldn't they be better? Why am I having to clean this up? David takes full ownership. Because even though this is an egregious sin, adultery, horrific, cover up, horrific, murder, horrific, he still knows how to take ownership of his stupidity and his rebellion and his despising of God. And he says, God have mercy. He besought God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. He no longer is licking his wounds. He does not have time to lick his wounds. This is not about him anymore. And if we're not careful, we'll make repentance all about us. And I'm so hurt and it's just so embarrassing and I'm just so ashamed. Good, you should be, but there's a life to live, so you better get on with it. Yes, you are wrong, but we've known it for 20 years. You're just now catching on. Are you that dense? We still loved you through it all. We don't care now. Just move on. If, you, if you're not careful, you'll stop and somehow continue in the vein of selfishness for which you had to repent and continue to make it all about you and all about you and all about you and all about you and how it's everybody else's fault but yours. David doesn't have time to be ashamed. He doesn't have time to lick his wounds. He doesn't have time to say, woe is me. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. He has family to save. Way better than Hezekiah. Way better than Ahab. He's got to intercede for the life of this innocent child. Why would we not repent and say, Lord, I, I messed up. I sinned against Robert and Angie. We love them. Lord, that was really stupid of me. Apparently, I still have diced carrots in my heart. May that not affect my kids. May my kids not learn how to talk that way. May my kids not pick up my little snarky sense of humor. Lord, might my kids be more loving. Lord, show me. Did I hurt my kids somehow? If they're under my coverage, I brought sin to my home. Maybe my kids are grown. Lord, this is where my daughter gets it. I see it now. Totally from me. May they be better than me. Lord, I pray that they're nothing like me. I pray my son is nothing like me. May he be better. Why would you not pray that way? I pray they're nothing like grandma and grandpa. May they be better. Why would we not pray him so much better than us? Except we're still hung up thinking we're, we're the standard. We're not the standard. We barely ring the standards bell from time to time. We've got to pray that the next generation is better than us. And so he fasted, prayed. We know that it, it doesn't happen. The baby dies anyway. Verse 20, then David arose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, changed his apparel, came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Seven days. Seven days. He's cleansed his system. He could not turn the baby's destiny and he's back to doing what must be done. He's not licking his wounds. He's not walking softly. He knows how to turn God. It did not work, but there's still a kingdom to run, and it needs its king. He worshiped, then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. 
Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this thou that, uh, that thou doest hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? I think if we could see that we're asking God to move and show us graciousness, why not get more grace on your life to help your children? God, be gracious to me and let the child live. God, be gracious to me and let the child live. Our selfish attitude says, well, they'll get it. They're adults now. Why not say, Lord, be gracious to me and deliver my adult child? Why not say, Lord, be gracious to me and call my prodigal home? Lord, be gracious to me and turn about this thing I put in them because I was a fool. Why not ask the Lord, be gracious to you and clean up your mess? Take ownership of it. We have to stop saying, well, this is just who they are. They're an adult now. Yeah, they are. And a lot of it's your fault. Have mercy on them, Lord. Let, let them catch. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, maybe a little, but I didn't realize it would be this bad. Have mercy on me. May they get it right. Show my children opportunity to repent. Why not intercede for them? Unless you just want to go watch more TV, more HGTV, more Facebook. Why do you need Facebook? It's wasting your life. If you got to do it for business, let it be business. But don't you have better things to do? Of course you do. When you know you've got better things to do, you know you got better things to do. Maybe you didn't realize you got better things to do. Quit wasting your life some ignorant drone six-inch swipe at a time. But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David comforted his wife and went into Bathsheba. They conceived Solomon, and the prophet said, called him Jedidiah. So Solomon's second name was Jedidiah, which means the Lord loves. And uh, so he had two names. Lemuel is a third name in Proverbs. So things do turn around. Hopefully we're learning something about repentance. May we not be old school CCF. That's our church's former name which we happily buried 15 years ago because of the corruption it was associated with. CCF, and I shouldn't just pick on CCF. It's a, it's a church habit. We repent long enough to get God off us. Just like children learn how to get mom and dad's anger off of them, and they learn how to walk by house rules so they can do what they want. May we not repent for two weeks. May we repent, period, and never go back. And then... Even we've, once we've repented, we still have another obligation. We intercede to clean up the mess. We intercede till all the damage we did is resolved to the best that prayer can fix it. And then we say, Lord, have mercy. Maybe it would just take one or two times of prayer to say, Lord, show me how much of a mess this has made. Show me how much of a mess this has made. If I use the example that we did in one of the previous services about we need to understand what kind of wake of destruction we leave behind us. And maybe the repentance came because we drove our boat onto something because we lost control. But that's only because we were speeding. So we crashed the boat. We realized, oh, goodness, Lord, forgive me. I've been speeding too fast. So we repent of the speed, but we still don't see everything our wake did behind us all down the lake how many fishermen it pushed into the shore, how many boats it made rock in the dock, 
how much damage we did to fiberglass. All we know is we wrecked our boat and we bumped our head and ouch, I'm so sorry, Lord, please help me and give me a good insurance return on my boat. We don't realize how much damage we did being selfish. It would be good to say, Lord, show me how many people I have hurt. So that would really lay it to my heart and I'll work even harder to never be that way again. Repentance is way deeper than we've taught it as Americans. But it does take work. It's the work of God, but it takes you on your knees in prayer, giving up time. That's work till you're a different person. Find the thing about you that you hate from the scriptures. The scriptures will reveal it. I hate that thing about me, Lord. Change it so that I can be more like you. Don't beat yourself up. Just hate that thing. We should all be able to say, oh, wretched man that I am. That's not Paul beating himself up. That's Paul recognizing he has an aspect about him that disgusts God and it's hindering him. We got to be different. 